0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman.
1: Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Linda Coletta. Linda is an abstract artist who has been creating art in various mediums for over 25 years. Linda's art is known nationally as she explores textures, patterns, and layers mimicked in nature and urban landscapes while using color as her muse. Her art examines themes of compulsion, obsession, and addiction through the lens of feminism, pop culture, and childhood sentiment. Linda's inability to discard any leftover materials traces back to her deeply personal issues with a compulsive overeating disorder, that often caused her to hoard and binge junk food in a secretive manner. Linda's art is stunning and moving, and ultimately her work gives form to the delicate alchemy of humanity. Listeners, make sure you check out Linda on Instagram, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. So Linda, thank you so much for joining me today. For those who maybe
0: don't know who you are, know about your work, would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Sure. My name is Linda Coletta. I am an abstract artist working in Bridgeport, Connecticut.
0: How did you get into art? Was it something that was really part of your childhood or what led you on this journey?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely part of my childhood. Um, My parents were both very artistic. Um, They weren't professional artists, but they my mother studied at Pratt and my dad Um, was a watercolorist and so yeah I was painting and drawing and all that from a very young age you know I think I thought I mean at one point it was like either nursing school or I was going to become an art teacher I don't know why I thought I should go to be a nurse because I'm terrible at any kind of math or science but um, luckily I got accepted to Parsons Art School and not accepted to Hunter College. And uh, so I, I went on to be an artist.
0: But you had a high school art teacher, Miss Peggy Ellis, who really mm-hmm. helped you realize your talent. Um, was it really important to have that support at a young mm-hmm. age? Because I think that there's students who love art, but they think I'm not going to be able to make a living or should I really do this? Or, yeah. you know, they're told it's time to grow up. How did she help you with that process, applying to Parsons and letting you believe in yourself?
2: Um, well, she, um, she was, I mean, she, first of all, she was just a great lady and, you know, not only was she my teacher, but she was my friend. And she just, you know, she treated me very much like a real person rather than like, you know, teacher, student, we were just peers, you know, at least that's how I felt. And um, she just thought I was really talented and she really believed in my talent. Um, And again, at least that's how I felt like from how she was with me. Um, And at some point in senior year, um, I think she found out or I told her that I was like applying for nursing school and she was like, what, you know, and um, just helped me through putting together a portfolio for Parsons um, and, you know, just like cared about me and, and took the time to walk me through the steps, um, especially because my parents just weren't, it's weird when I think back on it, my parents like never even talked to me about college, it wasn't even Conversation. Um, so yeah, she was just very supportive, and so we did that together. Yeah.
0: And I know that that transition from high school to college, for anyone, is really difficult. But for you especially, your dad passed away when you were eighteen. Any time you're dealing with grief, it shows up very differently. But then here you are starting this new chapter in your life, and your mom is still emotionally grieving. And can you talk? To our listeners about what that time was like, because I think that's a really unique experience, but it's also experience people have, and they have no one to turn to because they don't know someone else who's gone through it.
2: Yeah, the spring of my senior year of high school, my dad passed away suddenly, um, and under very upsetting circumstances. So basically. You know, my, my father was very strict and one weekend, uh, my birthday weekend, um, I was turning 18. He went away for the weekend and I decided to have a kegger. (laughs) And so I did. And he came home early and caught me and us in the act. And, you know, you know, he was a very angry Italian ex-cop. And uh, you know, it was a, it was a, it didn't go well. And um, unfortunately the last thing I ever said to him was, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I swear all the time.
2: Yeah. Um, The last thing I ever said to him was go fuck yourself. And then I ran away from home, stayed with a friend. And two weeks later he died. So needless to say, I was pretty traumatized. Um, My mother wasn't grieving the loss of him. They had been divorced a very long time and she hated him. Um, uh, And so I, and then I, you know, two months later or three months later, whatever, September went to college in New York City. And I had grown up in upstate New York, in a little town called Pine Bush that is, you know, very simple, one traffic light, you know, very white. Um, You know, so moving to New York City and being all on my own, truly on my own, um, I had no financial support. My mother really wasn't emotionally available. or financially or anything. So I, it was, it was terrified. I was terrified, you know, um, I had to get a job immediately. Um, plus I was taking, I, don't, I think I was taking like 20 credits, like I, um, cause I had gotten a full scholarship to Parsons um, and I was really excited and passionate about the work. And anyway, it was, a terrible experience on many levels. Um, and yeah, I had no one to talk to. I didn't know anyone else in art school. I didn't know anyone in New York City. Um, and so between processing the loss of my dad and, and the fact that somewhere in the back of my psyche, I kind of felt like I pissed him off so bad that he died. Um, I was in a highly competitive school. Um, I didn't make a lot of friends. Uh, The teachers were not nurturing or supportive. It was very hardcore critiquing. And I didn't get a lot of positive feedback on any of my work. And it was was kind of soul crushing.
0: (laughs) No, my heart breaks for you because at that time, I know I swear all time, like I, I've told my parents to fuck off so many times. They say it right back to me. <laughs> my mom, my mom now says it's like a different form of, I love you in our household. I've had an experience where I lost a friend and I remember the last thing I said to them and it like the last experience I had with them. And I ended up like pushing him away because he was drunk when he shouldn't have been because he was supposed to be sober. And I was so angry. And that was my last experience with him. And it haunted me when I found out that he overdosed. Yeah. And that was just a friend. I can't even imagine what you felt like with your dad. And now you're not even in the comfort of your own home. You're in New York city, which to me, I feel like every time I'm there, I can't breathe. It's so much. And you're young trying to figure out like, how am I going to make money? And you're in school and trying to meet new people, but you don't start with like a stable foundation because you're still grieving and trying to process kind of sounds like it was a combination just set up to fail. Like it wasn't going to be a good situation. And you also didn't have your mom trying to kind of be there to help you through it. So how did you navigate? Cause I know when we talked in our prep call, you talked about how you really started to question your talent question, if you could be there so much. So where you stopped looking people in the eyes. Mm-hmm. So obviously mentally, you were starting to like deteriorate
2: to some extent.
0: How did you get yourself out? Did you end up finishing school? What were, what did you do next?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, all in hindsight, I had no idea what was really happening to me at the time, but in hindsight and therapy and all those good things, I realized now that I was having a nervous breakdown, um, for my entire time at, Parsons. And yeah, I, I literally was so gripped with fear and self-consciousness that I couldn't make eye contact, like physically couldn't lift my head to look at another human being. It was a very strange feeling. Um, So, I mean, I basically just kind of suffered through it for my first year at Parsons. And then I, I don't know. I got this idea in my head. Honestly, I don't remember how or why or what, but I got this idea in my head that um, I was just going to go somewhere else. I was going to look at a map and I was going to pick a place and I was just going to go. And I did. I I, I literally think, I I don't know, you know how like when you have memories of things, but it's so long ago, like this might be folklore. I'm not sure, (laughs) but I think I just opened a map and like, put my finger down. And that's where I went. Um, and it was Tucson, Arizona. So that summer I, you know, I left, I transferred to the, uh, university university of Arizona. Um, and which is in Tucson, Arizona. And I drove cross country. Um, and I started going to school there. Um, and, that is where like my healing process began because on one hand I had the realization that since I was going to be in a new place I could completely reinvent myself no one knew me not that anyone knew me at Parsons but still for me it felt like I could be a new person here and um you know, I got a a great job at the mall and I was going to school and I was making friends. um, And um, I had this one moment out in the desert. The desert is so beautiful out in Tucson. Um, The, you know, the sky and, and the stars, you know there's very low lights there at night and they have special lights. They have like lighting regulations so that you can see the stars. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I was out in the desert, you know, hiking around with my friends. Um, and we, and it got dark because it was night. And then all of a sudden, as we're hiking and walking, this, the desert began to light up again. And it was like the weirdest thing. And we turn around and in the sky is this massive, crescent moon and it was so bright and so big it lit the whole desert up and I just like started bawling crying and and I and I got a tattoo of it <laughs> one of my first tattoos see the crescent moon um, and it was one of the first times that I was like oh I think my dad's watching over me like I think he's here Um, I don't know why I felt that. I just had that feeling. And it just started to, like, heal me. Um, And then I had this other, like, transformational moment. There was this little cafe in downtown Tucson called the Magritte Cafe. And um, just backstory, I, I wanted to be a waitress in New York City. And I was utterly terrified to just fill out an inner like a application because I just didn't think I was cool enough to be a waitress in a freaking restaurant in Manhattan like it was just I was so riddled
0: with you were broken I was broken yeah
2: um so there was this little cafe and they were hiring and I was like okay I'm gonna apply it's was like this huge step for me. And so I took the application and not only did I apply, but I made a piece of art out of the application. Like I cut it up and did all these cool things and collaged it back together and framed it and brought it in. And they were so blown away. And not only was I hired, but they were just like, so incredibly blown away at like my talent and what I had done. And, you know, and um i just remember driving home that night in my car like like i had had a breakthrough you know I, I was laughing i was crying i was i was like yay me you know and i just i really felt um like i had broken through whatever that was and then in fact i in that moment decided i'm going back to new york city and i am going to be a professional artist and so i didn't take the job <laughs> And I moved back to New York city, you know, like a month later and I got a job in a gallery and then I got a job as a scenic painter. And then, you know, my, my art career just kind of took off from there. Um, But sorry, to your point, I didn't paint my own artwork. I didn't create my own artwork for almost 20 years after my um, experience at Parsons. Um, I was creating art, but not my art, you know?
0: Well, what comes to mind when you talked about leaving New York and driving to Arizona and just kind of picking on a map is how brave you were. You might've not felt it at the time, but that takes a lot of bravery to one, drive across the country as a female by yourself with no real idea of what's going on. And then also to just kind of restart. You might've not felt it, but to me, what that says, is like, how brave you are. You might've not believed in yourself, but somewhere self deep down, you did enough to realize like, I deserve better. I need a new start. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I also really believe that the universe sends signs and our loved ones are watching us. And so that experience you had in the desert, like when you were before you even said, I was like, it's your dad. (laughs) Kind of shining the light on you that you have this, like you have the power within. You just had to figure out how to harness it yourself. When you came back to New York, did you like revisit your old stomping grounds or did you like avoid that area? Or were you able to walk uh, down those streets with your head held high and feeling like a different person?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I lived down in the East Village for many years and yeah, that was all fine. I mean, I didn't go back to Parsons or anything, but, um, yeah, no, I, when I went back to New York city, I felt like I owned the city at that point. Like I really came into my power and my, my entrepreneurship and and all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely was very afraid, but I've also been a go-getter in my life since I was, since I can remember, um, I've always been an entrepreneur. Like even as a little girl, I was always like coming up with little businesses and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I was so happy to be back in the city and I just ate it up from there,
0: from there on. What took so long to start your art? I've been following you on Instagram and love your pieces and have watched all your videos and I just like love to see the evolution of your art and we'll definitely get into that but what do you think was the catalyst for you to start on your own um
2: what took so long was that I I just really didn't think I was talented and I really I was also very stuck in the mind frame of figurative art and and realism and because that's how my father painted, that's how my mother painted, and I had it ingrained in my psyche, my you know that you know like this this fear you know like a rule that that if you couldn't draw photo realistically, then you're not a good artist, and you're not an artist. Period, and because I struggled drawing photorealism, I just decided I wasn't talented. Um, I can draw. It's just not <laughs> like a photograph, you know, which I think is pretty normal. Right? <laughs> but for whatever reason that, you know, that stopped me for a really long time. And then the other thing that stopped me was, okay, so if I was going to paint, Figuratively, but abstractly, um, what would I paint? Like, I needed a thing. Like, am I going to paint a landscape? Am I gonna paint a tree, a flower, a person, a still life, a fruit? And none of those things seemed important to me. Like, I didn't care. Like, why would I paint a landscape when you can go to the window and look outside and see a beautiful landscape? <laughs> that is a hundred million times better than anything I could ever paint, you know? So it just didn't make sense to me. I understand why people paint those and I appreciate them and I own landscape paintings. Right. But for me as an artist, like it just, it didn't make sense. So I couldn't answer that question for a really long time. Like I didn't know what was worth painting. Um, and so I just didn't paint. And then, um, in 2013 or 2012 just a dear friend of mine um just kept encouraging me like she knew my artwork and she she knew my talent and she just would not leave me alone about painting um and plus she was an she is an interior designer and she was always looking for local artists and you know art for her clients' homes. Um, and she, she was just like, please paint something. I'll sell it, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, there's a lot of parts to the story, but ultimately I, you know, was in my base, you know, set up a little studio in my basement and just started playing around. I hadn't painted in so long. I had to like reteach myself everything. And, um, in that experimenting and just playing with techniques and textures and how to mix paint and how to do all these things, I started just accident, not accidentally, but just randomly creating abstract art. And, you know, again, like just like a light bulb went off and I was like, oh, abstraction, right. (laughs) There is an art form (laughs) called abstraction, maybe you know, and I, I was excited about the colors and the texture and, you know, like the metaphors that those, the process was, you know, the story, the process was telling. So that was it. I just started painting abstractly and started studying abstract expressionism and, um, you know, like all the forefathers of, of that and Helen Frankenthaler and, you know, and then more contemporaries and, um, that was that. I,
0: so I think one of the things I love about your paintings, and I hope to own one one day, is that you, your colors, even in the background right now, like the blues and the neon greens, and it just, they're stunning. Um, and you have said that color is your muse. How did you get to that?
2: Well, at first, when I first started painting, I was painting with horrible colors. And and it was kind of like more traditional colors and I was also stuck in this mind frame of like I wanted to sell my work so that I could paint more um and so I got like bogged down with like well what are what colors do people like in their house and what colors are popular and what color you know and and the work was not good because of that um and I wasn't mixing my own colors at that point either. I was, you know, I was just like relearning. And so I was just using colors straight out of the bottle. And it was, it was terrible. My first paintings were horrible. I wish I never sold any of them. I did sell them,
0: but I wish I could have them all back. Um, you could them. do like a trade-in, like bring me a yeah. old piece. You can pick a new piece I really that I might, like. Actually. Like, please do that. <laughs> and then I'll do like a big, burning of them all together
2: <laughs> I don't want them in the world but it's okay um, I was learning so um yeah and I I was doing um I decided to put on my own solo pop-up show in Westport Connecticut about five years ago maybe um And I was doing that because, you know, I wasn't with a gallery, but I really wanted to like put together a collection of work and show people, you know, what I can do. And um, I decided that I was just going to paint whatever I wanted for this show. Like I was going to let go of any attachment to selling the work, anyone liking the work, anyone caring at all. Like it was purely for me. And In that decision, I wound up changing my entire color palette because what I really love and what's in my mind all the time is funky, bright, weird color. You know, like I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. I lived in the East Village for, you know, starting 1992 to 2007. Like I am true, you know, post-punk you know, East Village brat, you know, Um, and those are the colors I love. And those are the colors I saw. And those are, you know, like the distressed and the wheat pasting and the paint peeling and the caution signs and the red tape, you know, like everything, you know, to me, East Village was very colorful and layered and textured and, just that just stays in my mind always always and um and also there's just like you know there's a lot of like ugliness to the city too but there was something so beautiful to me about the ugliness um but also I feel like the colors represent a mood and an energy that I love which is you know like fierceness and excitement and enthusiasm and, you know, and then I also really love that the colors disturb most people. Um, In fact, so many, and like, I I keep trying to take this as like I'm onto something, but most gallerists and curators and people more in like the art world-ish, um inevitably always make a comment to me that I might want to try a different color palette or I might want to you know try something more monochromatic or this or that like that I just noticed they always want to change my colors and I find it really interesting and I think it the colors are um slightly off-putting slight like not off-putting, intimidating. And I like that a lot. Like I like that it puts people a little bit on edge and they have to feel like a a lot of my clients say to me, they have to like get up the courage to have these colors in their home, Um, which I I love that.
0: That blows my mind on so many levels because when I've looked and watch, I'm like, Oh my God, those colors are beautiful. I would be excited. I would feel energized. And what's interesting is you talk about how you examine themes around compulsion, obsession, and addiction. Those are all things that people don't want to talk about or want to stay away from that on top of it, you look through it in a lens, very feminine colors. Well, today we are recording this episode after the, the Roe versus Wade got overturned by the Supreme court. So it's interesting that people are like, tone it down. Or do you want to try something else? I feel like yes. people put that on females. Yes. Tone down. Don't be too bossy. Don't be too loud. You know, know your place, but your paintings almost saying no, like I'm yeah. here. I want right. to be seen. I want to be heard. And I, I, never thought when I looked at your work, thinking to myself, tone it down. If anything, I'm like, make the canvas bigger. Let me see more of the color and the dimension and the textures because it, I look at it as very glass half full. I get energized. I get excited. And it's just beautiful when you look at the layering. So I'm, you know,
2: that's right. That's exactly right. And, and those kinds of themes run throughout all of my work. Um, I'm obviously a feminist. Um, I do want to clarify that, you know, the colors are, I say the colors are feminine by my definition and feeling of my own femininity, right? Like there is no feminine masculine colors. And I just want to say that with respect to all people, however people uh, yeah. identify. Um, Absolutely.
0: I'm sorry if I misspoke. No, that, no, but. it's
2: fine. Um, I'm, I'm learning to make sure I say things like that, you know, because we're all brainwashed. And so I'm unwashing my brain <laughs> when I say things like that. 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 That's oh. the
0: point of this podcast is to yeah. really make sure that we're learning as yeah. we all are growing. Cause yeah. we have been taught that yeah. You know, certain colors mean certain things, which is not the case. A color is a color. Yeah. Anyone can use it, love yeah. it.
2: So, I mean, I, I, I notice a lot of things with my artwork. On one level, because the artwork is so pretty, like people look at it and it's immediately pretty to look at, it gets discounted as not important, right? Which is very interesting to me. And then to your point, because it's so big and bright and loud, I get told to tone it down, which is also really interesting. Um, And now I'm doing this new body of work, which is um, where I'm, I'm painting my large scale canvases and then I am tearing them up and then I'm weaving different paintings back together again. And... I didn't realize it wh- when, I was, when I started this process, but in hindsight, I can now see that, first of all, abstract expressionism historically through the American art canon is men's work. Like up until recently, you know, pretty much up until the Hilma af Klemp show it, at the Guggenheim pre-pandemic, abstraction was a man's job, like, you know, name five abstract expressionists, expressionistic female painters, right? Like most people can't. So, um, so the abstract expressionism was this, is this like, quote unquote, men's work, but then weaving is traditionally women's work, And something that is historically, all the way back to, you know, caveman time, is a ancient craft that women have always done. Um, And so I, I, the fact that I was taking my abstract expressionist paintings, tearing them up and then weaving them together felt like this statement of like, the demand of, of female inclusion into art history, into the man's world, into all of it, you know? Um, so yeah, it's definitely, you know, I feel often like, the you know, men, unfortunately, trying to like quiet me down for sure, my whole life.
0: And as you mentioned, like the art world really has been very male dominated when you oh, yeah, learn so about art. Yeah. Um, so you really explored textures beautifully and now your new work, I've been watching the videos of you weaving and putting in, how did that come to fruition? How did you get that idea to paint, tear it apart and put it back together?
2: I mean I can't pinpoint one moment so the way I work I'm I'm a I'm a very process-based artist so which means I don't come to the work with any preconceived ideas I don't sketch I don't have concepts I'm trying to express I I don't anything right like I walk into the studio and I just start like either wherever I left off or whatever's laying on the table or whatever catches my eye. And, um, or, you know, maybe I saw a color that I liked or, you know, but it's all very, it's a very organic process of one thing leading to the next and one painting sparking the idea of the next painting and one, you know, a scrap of canvas can inspire an entire next painting. And, you know, so, um, in that process of experimentation. And I, I don't know, I just started doing it, (laughs) you know? I mean, one of the things that was happening is um, I paint on both sides of the canvas. So when I am painting on canvas, I stretch the canvas to my large painting tables that you've seen, and I pull my paints much like Helen Frankenthaler where she would water down her paints and stain the canvas that's what I'm doing except with acrylics um and then I you know people see me walking on the canvas it's not because I'm painting with my shoes although I do like the polka dots (laughs) that
0: the shoes make which which shoes do you use for those because I love watching those videos. I know
2: I you know vans better watch this Freaking podcast! We're gonna
0: we're gonna tag Vans in this. Like we okay. need to get you a sponsorship. I can't tell
2: you how many times. So I wear Vans, and I wear a very specific one. I can't remember what they're called. Um, I don't have a pair here, believe it or not, because I brought them all to the other studio for a photo shoot. Um, I can't. They're like MX something. I don't know, but they have this very particular sole that makes little polka dots that I love but that's not how it started or why I do it I I do it to use my body weight to press the paint through the canvas so that it will come through the other side and then I'll flip the canvas over and I'll, I'll flip it over many times and continue that process and so basically what happened was that I really was falling in love with both sides of the canvas and then I was trying to figure out how to show both sides of the canvas how to stretch it or hang suspend it and I don't know somewhere along the way I was like well what if I tear it up and weave it back together you know like if I if I cut it in half flipped one side over and wove it back together I'd have both sides of the canvas on both sides of the canvas and then my head exploded and that's what I've been doing since then.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love watching the process. And as I said, like I've followed you for a few years. So to see the evolution has been really cool. The other thing I love is your naming convention. How do Uh you come up with the name? So one of my favorite pieces you have is ocean size.
2: Mm.
0: I just, I look at it, it's peaceful. It's beautiful the colors the blue the hues and for listeners I'll it's all right with you I'll post a picture of it so they can kind of see which one I'm talking about but how do you come up with these names a few
2: different ways Ocean Size is the name of a Jane's Addiction song Um, Jane's Addiction hence I'm a child of the 90s or an adolescent of the 90s Um, Jane's Addiction is my all-time favorite band um, and I I just love that song and I was list I was in a Jane's having a Jane's month you know like where you just listen to the same albums over and over again and you know so as I was making that piece I just decided that was the name um, but that happens a lot I listen to a lot of music all kinds of music all the time I just kind of zone out and and then while I'm making a piece I'll hear like a lyric or or, you know, like just a word in the song and that'll, it just, it just fits the piece, you know? And so I'll just write it down and decide that's the name of the piece. Um, The other thing I do is like, I'll just look at the piece at the end and, you know the whole reason most artists paint is because there there are no words for certain feelings that are trying to be expressed you know so I'll look at a painting and oh this is really sorry my head's going in 14 different directions on how to answer this question
0: no worries
2: (laughs) so I'll look at a piece and I'll try to I can feel it right like I can feel the piece and there's something about the piece that feels familiar to me which is also when i know a piece is done. so people ask me all the time like how do you know the work is done? i don't know why people are so fascinated with that. but every person asks me that. and the way i know a piece is done is that it there is something familiar about it to me that i cannot place. i don't know, but it just there's like a shape, there's a something that just feels like i know i know that. i know yeah. You it can recognize is, it. I recognize it, but not like I can see a, sh- like a dog or right. Like I can't, it's just like, it has that feeling of familiar. Like,
0: you know, when you smell something. And, and it invokes a memory, but you can't place it. you don't know, like, know what smelled this and I feel exactly. happy or calm or whatever it is. Exactly. I, I get it.
2: Yeah. Like every time I smell rose perfume, I just, I get this feeling of my childhood, but I don't know what or why, or what moment or who, you know, so it's the same thing with my paintings. Like it gets to a place and I'm like, Oh, that's it. Like, that's the thing. And, um, so then I'll, I'll try to put words to that thing and the words never live up to what it is because that's the whole point of painting, but I'll, but I try. And so I pick words that have that. Um, and for not for some reason, but a lot of those words have to do with food and candy and (laughs) cookies. Um, Just, you know, food was love and comfort to me for a very long time. So I
0: I understand you had personal issues with like compulsive overeating disorder. How, and obviously you just said that plays still into it. How did you get over that, or how did you get control on that aspect?
2: Um, I still don't have control. <laughs> There's no such thing when you're an addict. I, I am not in control. That's how <laughs> you you surrender. So I, I went to a 12-step program for compulsive overeaters, um, and it ta- I learned the 12 steps. And just like an alcoholic, I learned to surrender to the fact that I am powerless when it comes to food. And um, I just, I worked with a sponsor, I went to meetings and um, I learned to basic, they call it abstinence. And I became abstinent from compulsively overeating. Um, because as a food addict, you still have to eat food, right? So you have to create this new relationship with food. And um, so, I mean, this program changed my life, saved my life. Um, You know, I was 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And, you know, I had, yeah, it wasn't good. Um, And I wasn't I mean, I was very heavy, but I wouldn't say I was obese. So a lot of the people in this program start out extremely obese, um, morbidly obese. And, um, but more than overweight, I was you know, depressed and suicidal. You know, like I just wanted to die. Like I, the only thing I wanted in life was to be able to eat whatever I want and never gain weight, which I can't have. And so I just wanted to die, like, (laughs) like that's how bad it was, you know? So, um, yeah, I just, I surrendered to a power higher than myself. (laughs) And I, I really started to see that the addiction, like I became grateful for having, for having to deal with my addiction because all the changes I had to make and all the new ways of thinking and planning and preparing and protecting myself, made wow. my life beautiful, made all my dreams come true. You know. And truly it's called the promises of the program for anyone out there who's suffering. And they really do promise you a life beyond your wildest expectations when you get sober and surrender and it it just really happened and worked and um that's how I did it.
0: Do you think that that going through that having to surrender, admit that there was an issue also was the catalyst for you to also possibly deal with your past trauma and past oh, yeah. issues that maybe oh yeah. We're all really good at suppressing stuff. I know I'm going through my own personal Journey of healing trauma and everything. Yeah. And then I'm starting to realize how I suppress it or deal with it by probably unhealthy behaviors, nothing that's horrible, yeah. but patterns yeah. that if I address the root of the issue, the pattern goes away.
2: Yes. Yeah. For sure. I, you know, had to deal with the guilt and the trauma I felt from my dad and my childhood in general, you know, um, and definitely could see why I was eating, you know, it was pure comfort, just pure numb. Like I just didn't want to feel anything. So I would just eat and eat and eat. And I didn't have to feel my feelings. I just would, the only feeling I would have was like, what do I want to eat next? (laughs) It was like, insanity um so yeah I mean when I stopped eating compulsively I had a lot of feelings and that was a a lot and you know I went to therapy I used the 12-step group I was in life coaching program and you know I did a lot to heal myself um and you know when I got sober is when I started painting again. And when my art career like just took off and the, and the longer I was sober, the better I was doing at my art career, you know? And I always say to people, like, I feel like there's this thing in yoga. I used, I used to study yoga a lot and I used to teach yoga. And there's this word in, in Sanskrit called sadhana. And it doesn't, no Sanskrit really translates well into English, but it's, it kind of means like your sacred duty, but it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad, it's like, for me, the way I interpret it is like every person has this one thing in life that if you would give it up, you would have everything you ever wanted. And, and so that's my interpretation of sadhana. And I realized that the compulsive eating, like my attachment to the, to the glee of sugar and food, if I would give that up, I would have everything I ever wanted. And that is true for me. That is exactly what happened. Um, So, yeah.
0: I'm going to have to like really think about that. I think that's just such amazing advice like it's hard for me to kind of put in words what I'm thinking right now because I feel like a door was just open by you saying that like you give Uh, up one thing that you might not want to and like
2: no that you utterly won't
0: yeah but then like the possibilities are there it's yeah Wow.
2: And it doesn't Um, necessarily have to be like an addiction or this. No, it it can can just just be a thought pattern. Yes. Or a belief that you have, you know, Mm -hmm. and it changes everything. And it's, and it really is that like the one thing that you're like, stay the fuck away from that one thing, you know, like you're going to the grave with it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That's my theory. I, I don't claim to be
0: no, I mean, I'm really gonna ponder this. I, I, f- <laughs> I feel like you just opened up a door for me. Cool. Like this is like a therapy session. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, so, I've done enough of it. I feel. Yeah, like- I'm. I'm really <laughs> loving this. Um, but I want to also be really mindful of your time. Yeah. Re- sure. Um, before we get into the final three questions, what is some advice you would
1: tell young artists?
2: Oh my god. I mean, first of all, just start paint, create, create every single day, create every single day. Because if you start now, it's incredible how far you will be in five to 10 years, you know, and and art is a process. So you can't expect to start and be somewhere like you're going to be nowhere for many years until, you know, like it's a real craft that has to develop and, and time has to be put into it you know so I would I would just say start and paint and draw and write and create and do it every single day like it's your job because it is your job because that's the job you want <laughs> right
0: no it's great advice yeah Um, Thank you so much. For listeners, I'm going to tag Linda and we'll put up some of her art on our Instagram so you can take a look. It's beautiful. I love all your content. You you. do such a great job. I end every episode with the same three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be?
2: My favorite quote of all time is um, something Georgia O'Keeffe said, and it goes, I hope I say it right but you'll look it up and put the right words for me if I don't, right? Of course. Um, Whether you succeed or not is irrelevant. Making your unknown known is the thing. Always keeping the unknown beyond you. I think I got it right. Or very very close. Um, it gives me the chills just even saying it. Um, I love that quote. I use it all the time. I, I, yeah. It it means a lot to me.
0: It's beautiful. I've never heard it before. So thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah, it's you know it's about being in the process rather than in the final, whatever. You know, it's just being in the process.
0: Doing the work. Yeah. Um, the second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick?
2: Oh. oh, that's so hard. Okay. For some reason, the very first thing that came into my head was, was the birth of my son. However, that was in a very <laughs> excruciating day. I don't know that I'd actually want to relive the physical aspect of it. <laughs> But the, the emotional aspect of it, I always say I had this, you know, when he was born, I just, I felt, I felt like I just won the gold medal in life. Like that was the sentence that came out of my life. Like I, out of my mouth, I just felt, you know, amazing. Um, you know, he's like my greatest accomplishment of all time. He's super cool. He's way cooler than me. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I would say that moment, but with highly med- med- medicated because I was not medicated at all the first time, <laughs> it's completely natural, which I'm happy I did.
0: I mean, more props to you talk about, you know, that bravery continues on in all your experiences. Yeah. Um, the last question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose?
2: So it feels a little pompous, but (laughs) I love um, this Led Zeppelin song called The Immigrant Song. It plays in Thor. And I just, I love that scene in that movie. I'm a big like superhero movie fan. Um, And I just, it's so powerful. It's like, nah, nah. And like, you know, Thor comes down. It's just, it's so powerful and and that's how I that's how I feel when I walk in a room nowadays it's, I feel very powerful and I always want to feel that
0: I am so excited to be adding a Led zeppelin song to the for your listening pleasure yes. on playlist on Spotify I've been waiting for a guest to give me a zeppelin <laughs> song so I'm so so excited so listeners can listen to your theme song along with all the guest theme songs on that playlist awesome. Linda, thank you so much. This has been so lovely. I've enjoyed not only speaking with you today, but also watching your work evolve. And I'm so excited to see where it continues to grow.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much. I. This was so fun.